pray for Nikki, and, and we just ask that this cancer would be wiped out. And then we bless her, and we bless her family that's dear to us, and thank you for the progress in our friends. We continue to pray for uh, Pat's friend, and, and, uh, and I'm sure in this room, there's so many prayer needs. We, we ask you, Lord, for healing and for your hand intervening in the worst of what life has to offer us. Father, in Jesus' name, we come now as people who want to uh, seriously be your students, to learn your ways and to grow in Christ-likeness, to move towards maturity. And so, Lord, I pray for the person here who's having the toughest time with life. If for some reason life is just battering them right now, I pray for hope from this message. And, and just for all of us, as we just say, look, the world sends confusing messages to us. God, send a clear message today. May this be that as you speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, what I want to do today, we are continuing in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous sermon, this incredible message uh, about how to live life and what life looks like when it's full, when it's blessed, when it's uh, abundant. What, what is this thing that Jesus comes to teach? Um, we are getting the help of this book, uh, The Divine Conspiracy, which I totally recommend to some of you and not to some others. And you can figure that out after you purchase the whole book, okay? <laughs> but I love this book so much. It's really great. I do know that not everybody finds it an easy read. Uh, but um, I want to just uh, acknowledge that he really helps us. And one of the things that Dallas says, it's written by Dallas Wood. One of the things Dallas says uh, at the start of the book is, the Sermon on the Mount is not some collection of all Jesus's uh, teachings, he says, like a bag of marbles, right? You know, like this little marble and this little marble, and just put it in there, and you could say it in any order. No, he really feels that there's an art of the whole story, and I want to uh, give you a, a look at what this sermon is before next week when we get into some of the specific teachings uh, of the sermon. But uh, Dallas uh, tells a story at the very beginning of this book that I think is a great metaphor uh, for us as we, uh, as we think about our life and think about how does Jesus' teaching actually impact our life? How can, we, how can we be those kind of people who are the best kind of students who don't just hear teaching and then foolishly ignore it to our own um, peril? And he tells a story of a, a pilot who's flying upside down, which is uh, some planes can do that. Their wings can uh, get lift either upside down or right side up. And the pilot was flying upside down, but she didn't know that she was upside down, okay? Because she was in clouds, she didn't have any visual uh, cues. Her gauges maybe were uh, malfunctioning or she wasn't looking at them. And here's the story. It says, recently a pilot was practicing high-speed maneuvers in a jet fighter. She turned the controls for what she thought would be a steep ascent, and she flew straight into the ground. She was unaware that she had been flying upside down. This is a parable of human existence in our times. Not necessarily that everyone is crashing, though there is certainly enough of that, but that most of us as individuals and the whole society as a whole live at a high speed and often, and often we have no clue about whether we're flying upside down or right side up. Indeed, we're haunted by a strong suspicion that there may be no difference, or at least that it's unknowable or irrever uh, irrelevant. 
Okay, and so then he goes on to talk about how we've lost as a culture uh, a sense that there is knowledge, knowledge of what is true, what is good, what is moral, how to live. And we've also lost this in our institutions. He names the church, but also because Dallas is a, a professor, he's really concerned that uh, the academy has lost its ability to speak to us about moral truth. And he, um, he says this here. Now, uh, Dallas, his main career, his, his core career was as a professor of philosophy. He's a pretty famous philosopher in American philosophy. You could look him up on uh, Wikipedia or some non-Christian secular situation. You'd, you'd find stuff about Dallas Willard. Uh, but uh, he speaks as a professor of USC, and he just decries the fact that uh, whereas he believes in his heart of hearts, and of course the biblical perspective is this, he believes that knowledge can, uh, moral knowledge can be known. It's knowledge. It's not uh, debatable, uh, just like math. He says, of course, uh, you know, if a, stu if a student wrote that 7 times 5 equals 32, or that Columbus discovered America in 1520, we wouldn't, we wouldn't permit this. It's just sort of an acceptable, one of the acceptable options. Who's to say? He believes in knowledge, and he believes that you can know what is right. This is uh, what he says. Uh, there is now not a single moral conclusion about behavior or character traits that a teacher could base a student's grade on. Not even those which are most dear to educators, like fairness or diversity. If you lowered a student's grade just for saying on a test that discrimination is morally acceptable, for example, the student would contest that grade to the administration. And if that position on the moral acceptability of discrimination were the only point at issue, the student would win. Their plane is upside down, and the teacher has no way to really uh, you know, uh, correct or influence uh, that kind of thinking. And then he goes on uh, to tell a story, which comes from uh, a paper written by Robert Coles. Coles is a professor of the humanities and psychiatry at Harvard, and the paper is called The Disparity Between Intellect and Character. And I don't think he lines up exactly with Coles, but Coles is um, just telling about a situation that happened. The, the whole paper uh, came out of something that happened when a young woman who was a student there, and he describes her as a Midwestern working class background uh, young woman uh, who grew up believing in things like the right answers or, um, lost my page there. She grew up believing like right answers or ideology. And she, she remained strong in these perspectives. And because she was from a working class family, she had to work as she went her, uh, through school and she cleaned rooms at the university to do that. Again and again, she reported to Coles that people in the classes with her, who were in ethics classes with her, mistreated her, treated her ungraciously because of her lower economic position uh, without simple courtesy or respect and often were rude and sometimes crude to her. And she was repeatedly propositioned for sex by one young student in particular as she went about her work. He was a man with whom she had two moral reasoning uh, courses and in those courses, he excelled and he received the highest grade. Okay, and then so she, she says, uh, you know, what is the point of teaching people to be good if 
uh, it doesn't actually impact a person being good. What's the point if somebody can pass, uh, pass tests and excel in their, their uh, writing about ethics if that person at the end doesn't turn out to be a good person? And of course, this is similar to what Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount when he says a wise person is like somebody who hears his teaching and then actually builds their life on that teaching. That it's only wise not to know the facts. And we, we love to just like fill. In fact, Jesus said, or Dallas would say about Jesus, he would have never expected, and the, the whole culture would have never expected that people would so love learning. They would come, they would record teachings, they would share teachings on YouTube, they would write notes and notes and notes and papers and papers and papers about teaching with no expectation that it would influence their lives. Jesus teaches this sermon with the strongest expectation that we would listen to him as an expert on how to fly our planes right side up. And the whole thing makes sense if you look at it in this understanding that God is noble, that God is good, that God is filled with love, and that God would, if he had a chance to speak to us in person, teach us how to live. The Sermon on the Mount is about Jesus teaching on life, eternal life, or abundant life, as he says in John 10. Jesus is teaching us, here's the good life. Okay, now Dallas is sort of famous uh, for having four questions that he asks. He thinks everybody has to answer these questions. In fact, everybody does answer these questions, whether or not they're really aware of the questions. These four questions are philosophical questions uh, orienting you they're like gauges orienting you. How are you doing? What do you believe? How, how will you adjust your life? Right? And these are the questions. What is reality? Who is well off or blessed? And, or to line this up with the sermon series we're calling The Good Life. Who's living the good life? Who's truly a good person? And then how does one become a good person? He, he lives with these questions. He, he works with these questions. If you were trying to find out which book Dallas said this in, the answer is in all of his books. You'll see these four questions come up at some point. And he's echoing the lament of that young woman cleaning rooms and being propositioned by the guy who gets the best scores in ethics. What does it matter if you can score in ethics and still be a jerk? Right? We're asking ourselves that question. Christians must ask themselves uh, th that question, how do I become light in this world? How, if this world is in some way truly dark, can we shine some kind of light? And that's, of course, one of the teachings of Jesus in here. How can we become salt? How can we be something other than the bland flavor of just uh, moral ambu ambiguity in this world? How can we actually be distinct? How can we be impactful? How can we learn these ways? How can we not be, you know, kind of crazed or numbed by the fog of understanding that our world has the people of our town, the people of our campuses, the people that we work with, our parents probably. Like, the, the whole world is in like a fog of like, can you say anything is wrong or anything is right? How could we be those kind of people who by living a certain way, by their good deeds, glorify our Father who is in heaven? Carrie Rosen, who's a dear member of our church, a friend of mine, uh, sent me a little piece of art, and it was by a, a bishop in the Ru Russian Orthodox uh, Church. His name is uh, Anthony Bloom. And uh, the, the quote he said was this. He said, 
we should try to live in such a way that if the gospel were lost, they could, uh, they could, if the gospels were lost, they could be rewritten just by looking at our lives. Super interesting, right? So let's take a look at Dallas's answers to these questions. Uh, what is reality? Well, the reality is the kingdom of God. When, when Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, he's telling us, uh, I'll tell you how right side up, right side upness has come into the world. And we see it best, most clearly, in the life of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount is just trying to act like gauges for us. Like, here's what it looks like when people are healthy and well off and they're uh, living right side up. Um, there, he has questions about what won't, won't kill us, what won't help us kill other people. Ultimately, the ultimate gauge goes towards love, right? It's the ultimate thing in the Bible, right? The love of God and the love of uh, other people, including those people who don't love you back, right? Who is well off or blessed? Who's living the good life? Well, the person who has entered into the kingdom of God. And some of what we have to do as we work through this content is just think about uh, whereas uh, traditionally evangelical Christians have thought like the ultimate, the ultimate goal is to get into heaven. Like whatever you do here, if you've got the sticker, if you've got the barcode, God will let you into heaven. And then all your reward will be in some other kind of place at the end of what we call our life here. And obviously, I mean, not obviously, but I certainly believe that there is a great reward and much uh, wonder and delight awaiting for us on the other side of what we call death. But uh, we, we believe that we can enter into God's way of living, God's kind of rule uh, in this life. Who is truly a good person? Well, anybody who is pervaded by love, who's governed by love, who doesn't do things because it wouldn't be loving, who does do things because it would be loving. And love is that thing where you prefer someone else and are willing to pay a price to see that preference enacted. Right? Willing and probably active in enacting that preference, okay? And then how does one become a truly good person? Well, Dallas would say, well, you become an apprentice to kingdom living and an apprentice of that one who was the very best at living by the right side up gauges of, of the Lord, of the king. Okay, so that's a lot of stuff boiled down into a little bit there. All right, so... How, how can we push into this? How can we uh, learn this? It's one of the questions that has been uh, just driving the church council as we think about what are we as a church. And, you know, as you go along as a church for 21 years in, you can get involved in a ton of things. Uh, all kinds of things offer themselves to you. We're trying to sort it out. What are we trying to do? We've thought long and hard about this this year. In fact, um, as uh, we are talking about in the announcement there, uh, this move from membership to partnership is a big part of that. We're, what we're trying to say is, um, how can we lead the church all in one direction? How is it that we could get everybody buying in and push into one direction, and then if we got everybody sort of moving in direction, what would that direction be, right? What would it be? Well, the, the direction we believe that God has for us is that we would train people and that we ourselves would be apprentices with this expert in life who knows about what the abundant life is, what the right side up life is, the, the blessed life, as we, we have the Beatitudes that we're going to talk about, especially next week, right? Jesus has uh, 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 
envisions a community of people that are somehow, by his grace, filled with his spirit. Filled with Christ himself and then learning to live, uh, you know, counter to the gauges that our society keeps putting in front of us. We're learning to live these other ways. In fact, you can look through the Sermon on the Mount and sort of think about it. It's like, huh, do the people around me believe this, this is the good life? Do the people all in my town or the way I was trained or the way I was raised really believe that? And Jesus will sort of uh, just acknowledge, no, like a lot of our culture doesn't, especially now, especially now. And then sometimes what Jesus does is not so much push against the culture around us or the the fog around us. He pushes against the way the law has been presented to religious folks uh, up until that point. And he'll say things like, um, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. Okay, you've heard the law said, and he says, well, I'm not here to abolish the law. I'm not trying to destroy what you've always thought was important based on the law. I'm here to fulfill the law. And I think of it like this, that like people have this like two-dimensional idea of what God wants, but he's like blowing it out into three dimensions. Okay, like, yes, it's the law, you know, but I say unto you, yes, you know, uh, you're not supposed to murder, but I say unto you, don't call anybody a fool, right? And what he's really doing is this. He's working to write the law on our hearts. He's going for more than just compliance. He's going for the very heart of it. He's, he's trying to teach us how to live, how to be apprentices of how can you live. Now, I had several awesome uh, apprentice experiences in my life but one of them was I had the opportunity to work for George Nakashima and you can look him up a really interesting guy I'd prefer if you didn't look him up right now okay <laughs> everybody's got their computers right with them George Nakashima right whoa and he makes beautiful you know live edge uh, organically informed pieces of furniture from a, a Japanese perspective and aesthetic it's just amazing. Finishism to the ultimate. If you have a knock, they're in museums. They're in, you know, the, the homes of those who could afford such things. And just amazing, amazing, influential uh, works of art as furniture. And uh, he's a quite famous guy. And you would enjoy looking at his work. Again, not right this second. And so I'm, I'm working for him. I'm working for him as, as a, a lawn boy. Like, I'm cutting his grass because if, if I have an art skill, it's, it's starting a mower and pushing it around, you know. And so I'm working for Nakashima. I'm cutting his grass. But I get to be around him. I get to know what his role is as the master. And he really is a master, like a world-famous master. And at this point in his career, he's an elderly man also working for him. His role was sort of standing back looking at a giant, you know, maybe 20-foot slab of wood, a black uh, walnut or something like that, and taking, taking a piece of chalk and marking it. And that's all he did. They, they had some kind of, you know, a range of, of different pieces of furniture. They would decide, well, this, this slab will work well with, you know, creating this table that we make. And uh, he would say, make the cut here and here, and here, and that's pretty much all he did at this point. Like, all of the knowledge was based in just, like, basic directions, and he didn't run a saw, he didn't run a sander, he didn't do any of that, 
you know, and yeah, all these people, his daughter was his primary apprentice, she was learning and still continues his work uh, to this day, and then there was the, you know, the head of the shop, and then the shop had a hierarchy that went all the way down to like, what happens when you enter into uh, the work of Nakashima? Well, you enter into the work of Nakashima by sanding. I mean, sanding was a, a big thing for these guys, and these things were just finished to the nth degree, and uh, they, they told me, because I got to know the guys a little bit, you know, on my grass breaks, you know, like, you know, but they said, you have to work seven years sanding. All right, so how much do you want to learn what Nakashima has to teach to work for seven years with a belt sander? Right? So that's a long time of sanding. That's a lot of sawdust, right? That's, and that's all they did. Or, or the other thing you could do is rubbing oil into the wood, okay? Which was really hard to mess up, okay? It's just, and these two things, you either had a cloth in your hand with some oil or you had a sander, you know, and that was, the, that was the whole deal. But then you would go on up to a slightly more skilled role after seven years. Then you would go on up, and then pretty soon you'd be maybe a master uh, furniture maker, craftsman. So the question is to us, would we like to learn how to fly like Jesus. How to do art like Jesus. How to, how, to, how to live in this foggy world like Jesus. And if the answer is yes, then we would have to you know, figure out, well, how do we approach the Sermon on the Mount, which is primary uh, discourse of Matthew, this, this primary thing we know of his teaching, and people think all the time, well, Jesus, Jesus sort of just puts that way out so that we finish here, right? This is like some grand teaching here. Or people will say, this is a new law. This is a new kind of law, which no, it's not law. This is, this, is, this is art. This is Jesus saying, I can teach you how to live this way, but it will require, as we talked about last, last week, change, right? Okay, so the kingdom of God. From that time, Jesus began to preach, repent, change, for the kingdom of heaven is near. I talked about the, the rescue effort for 33 miners and that rescue thing coming down. Can you imagine this rescue coming from above down to a miner trapped in a cave, you know, with no hope? The rescue comes and the miner says, well, I don't think so. You know, I, that would require me, like, getting in the thing he sent down. I don't really like that. It seems a little narrow, right? No, no, that's what Jesus says. To learn what I've got will require change. And I am just hitting right now the problem with the church that we would like to just write notes, get teachings, go to conferences, learn stuff, and not then adjust our lives according to that stuff. Okay, and it's in me too. I'm not trying to point fingers at anybody, but if we were to be a faithful church, this is what we do. We learn from our master, then we try to change. Try this. That's what we try to do. I told you before the story where I used to take the boys sledding on the hill just a couple blocks over here. Hill, we'd go sledding, and one time of sledding, they were a good bit smaller at the point, so we were stacked three on top of each other on an old-style sled, right? And uh, we go over a bump, and we, we land. The sled hits hard, and as it would happen, 
you know, the, the 200 and something pound guy was on the bottom, which is really good for 10 year olds. Like, you know, and I'm at the bottom and we hit and it, it just hurts. There's a certain age when the kids are getting bigger, you're just like, like wow, you're not a toddler anymore, are you, man? I, oh, and I just take the hit and I just send him down the hill. Like, Dad, I'll meet you at the top, you know? Like, I, and I'm like staggered and I'm just kind of adjusting. And I hear this little sound like, and it's just a little sound, and then it's got like giggling, like, you know, like, and it's coming, it's getting a little bit louder. And I turn around just in time to see the biggest inner tube of all time just filled with children coming right at me. And they just plow over me. They just like, boom. It's just, I'm just this old guy in the middle here, just recovering from my incident there. And they just crush me. That's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is just coming. Jesus comes into the world. He goes, there's nobody that's not going to be affected by this. You'll, you'll either have to get on. You'll have to adjust, jump out of the way. So you're going to have to repent. You're going to have to do something. You will have to adjust. You can't. There are moments in your life when you will understand this. When somebody dies, it's really one of the things. There's moments of clarity, right? When your big plan fails, and you knew it wasn't that great of a plan, but then it actually gets to the point it failed. You know, as a guy who's at a lot of funerals and, uh, you know, hospital rooms and stuff like that, there's just moments of clarity that really, for the most part, uh, you know, we don't have, we don't live with the sense of, like, impending, you know, Change is required. You can go a long way in wrong directions, right? And what Jesus is saying at the very beginning of the sermon is like, repent. Everything's changed now. God has come into the world. The, his ways are coming into the world. It will be super beneficial for you if you would adjust. It will require a ton of adjustment. There's no way that that thing is not going to hit you, right? It's here. And you have to adjust to it. So what if... The Sermon on the Mount was just like a master class on who can and uh, how they can enter into God's kingdom, which comes to correct our upside-down flight, right? God's filled with, with knowledge. He comes. He speaks his word to us. His word is Jesus. And, uh, you know, sometimes people will teach about the, the, the kingdom as though it's the upside-down kingdom. It's not. We're the upside-down kingdom. The right-side-up one, the one with all understanding, comes to inform us how and what changes will be required for us to enjoy an abundant life or for us to thrive in some kind of way, uh, for us to flourish, right? And uh, so that's the message, okay? So, so here's this, this is the whole setup. This is the overview. I want to just talk about a couple of Jesus' teachings in my last uh, a bit here as examples of this. So, so what first Jesus is saying is this, like the kingdom is coming, you, you're going to have to adjust, repent means adjust or change, everything's going to flip around, like here's something that will require you to adjust or the consequences will play out uh, as did the, the pilots in that first story, okay? Um, and then what he says right after is this. He talks about who, 
who could possibly benefit from this? Like, who could benefit from this uh, blessedness of being in an abundant life uh, situation? And we know this little series, this first part of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, as the Beatitudes. And next week, we're going to talk about this in more depth. But just, I want you to just get an idea. What are, what are, what's the idea? You know, he says, you, everyone's going to change. If you don't change, you'll get run over by this deal. A, but I do want to say that common understandings of who is blessed are uh, wrong. Now, these things are not things that we are to des desire, as is sometimes taught. Like, you feel like, well, I guess it's, you know, it's good to be persecuted. I, I need to be persecuted in order to be blessed. No, it's, it's saying that if somebody looks down on you or insults you or lies about you or speaks to you with lies because you're associated with Jesus, uh, still blessing extends to you. If you have a, a life that's filled with grief, you are not outside of the blessing of God. Still, you will be comforted that God is there for you. You're the kind of person. The kind of people we think like, don't you have a certain kind of people? Oh, that person, man. You kind of wonder, like, what's wrong with them that their life stinks so bad? Do you ever have that thought? What, what did they do? I mean, certainly a biblical thought. You know, who is sin? His parents are him, that he was born blind. Right? It's a kind of a thought that we have. Like, uh, and maybe we don't have too much because we, we have so much going for us here. We, you know, when we talk about privilege, it's one of the things we're talking about is uh, in our culture, in our, our place here, we might sometimes miss the fact that some people have really brutal lives. The, the Beatitudes are about the fact that the gospel extends to them, that the good news of the kingdom comes to them. So on the one hand, there's this, this challenge, like you will have to change, but there's also then an open door. This is for all. This is for people you think are on the outside. You think it's you think it's nuts to show mercy? You get judged because you are a mercy, mercy giver in this world? Jesus, no, no, no. You'll be shown mercy, right? And we'll talk about this more. Uh, I love what he says about the poor in the spirit. He basically thinks that the poor in the spirit, the poor in spirit are people who just don't get spiritual stuff as easily as others. He calls them spiritually zeros, right? Like, just, a, just, a, just your average person, you know, you go to work and you, want to talk about God, and they're like, God, who are the Phillies going to get to, you know, anchor the third position of the rotation this year, right? Just people are just sort of not tuned into the spirit. Oh, no, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. God can come to people like that. And really, some of the most interesting people you know, people who are really growing in the Lord, are people you think like, oh, gosh, how did, that, how did that person ever get like a spiritual clue, right? It's kind of fascinating Sometimes, who really keeps growing and who doesn't? I often talk about my, my affection for people in recovery, how they, they just seem to open up in humility, in poverty of spirit. They kind of open up and they grow really fast. It's sort of fascinating. Okay, here's, here's like right side up difference making. This, this call to be flavorful, this call not to hide your light. Okay, and again, we'll start going into these in more specific. I'm not, I can't read all the scriptures to you. But I'm just taking on you a tour over the Sermon on the Mount. This, this idea that you were meant not to be bland. You were meant to be flavorful. Nobody watched a cooking show 
right? You see, the, all the cooking shows, like, it cracks me up how many there are. I'm not really a chef or anything like that. I do like food, you know. But it cracks, no, there's no cooking show like the bland show, <laughs> right? You want your stuff to be ordinary? This is the show for you, right? This is like a guy with a can opener, you know, and some green beans out. No, there's no show like that. Right? And Jesus says, look, you are meant to be filled with flavor. Filled with flavor. You're meant to be an influencer. You're meant to stand out. Don't be, don't be ashamed of the fact that your spiritual understanding, your, your, your the discipleship to Jesus causes you sometimes to have a different take on things. That is flavor for this world when it is um, lived out in a beautiful, winsome way. There's nothing that makes more curiosity. What is it? Do you ever see somebody that's filled with peace in a, in, in a situation? You think, how in the world is he not getting riled up? Why is she not worried? Right? Once again, we're going to war, and this person is just sitting there calmly. Right? There's a difference about those who are, are being influenced by God. And by the way, I do... Um, oh, let's just keep going. Okay. <laughs> We're going to talk all about this stuff here, but right side up anger, okay? So this idea that your anger, which comes to all of us, I know some of you are placid little lakes, that's beautiful, you know, I've just wrestled with anger my whole life, and just be, oh, get agitated, right? And what Jesus says, he goes, you've heard it said this, but I tell you this, you've heard it said uh, to people long ago, you shall not murder, but anyone who murders will be subject to judgment, but I tell you anybody... Angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. In other words, that's, uh, nobody gets a prize for not killing somebody. <laughs> right? You, don't you hear people say this? Well, I never murdered anybody. <laughs> what kind of heaven are you going to? Where, like, the only provision for you is when you get there, nobody will get murdered. Right? There's so much more. And Jesus is constantly saying, well... Okay, that's the law. That's two-dimensional. But three dimensions? Three, what does that look like when you don't want you know, somebody to be murdered? Delco. <laughs> hey, you drive here too, right? You know what I'm talking about, right? Some of the looks you get look like you know, some kind of secret sign for die at the next intersection. <laughs> right? He's going after your heart. Like, what Jesus wants is not that you would not murder, although that's super important. <laughs> he just wants you not to want to murder or not to look at people with contempt where you think that they're not worthy of your condemnation. He's trying to make you... Uh, uh, I love this part here, and it's also challenging to me, this idea of leaving your gift at the altar. Like, uh, you're involved in a religious ritual. ritual. It's important. We, we believe religion's important. We're a church, Right? Right? He goes, there's something more important, reconciliation. Take care of relationships as best as you can, as much as it depends on you. I love the fact that it's not even governed on you. It's governed on, you remember your brother or sister has something against you. Stop doing religion. Go make reconciliation. Go first and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. He's telling you, here's the gauge. Here's how to live. This is the different way. Uh, he talks about money in the Sermon on the Mount, or this reputation, I'll say first. This reputation, this famous one where uh, apparently people would go out into the streets and announce with trumpets that they're giving to the needy. 
Hey, may I have your attention? I'm about to do something good. Giant check. I'm going to sign it. Me! And he's like, look, what if you just were like a force for good in this world? What if people didn't need because of you? And, and we'll talk about this. I love this. Look at this pattern. And this is, the, this is right before the Sermon on the Mount. You might recognize this part. He keeps saying about this. There is an unseen God. And if you covet the seeing of people, you might miss that he sees you and will reward you in full. Or uh, he will reward you, uh, where does it say down here? The Father, then your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. So three things. Don't crave people seeing you, right? Your Father, who is unseen, is one of the realities that we're working with all the time, Right? So if you're a pilot, you're flying along, your gauges, well, there's a lot of unseen things. Your gauges are supposed to give you true and accurate readings of the unseen. He says, you have a father who sees you. And that's a beautiful thing to think. You don't see him, but he sees you. And that's a tension of living this life that we live. We have an invis- invisible God, and we work, work that out. And he is super interested in rewarding you. It's not that there's n- to be no reward it's that you can get a substandard of a lowly reward, the reward of, isn't she amazing, right? Isn't she fine? Isn't she famous, right? And we love fame, and we love our celebrities, right? You know, how's everybody dressing for the Golden Globes, right? Uh, okay. I just hope there's more to them than that, right? Okay. Uh, here's another thing. What, you love the Golden Globes? Who doesn't? Okay. <laughs> money. You can get money wrong. You can get money wrong. Surprising in America, right? Right? But you can serve money. Money can take you away for your le- from your allegiance to God. And you will either serve money or money will serve you like a little tool like it's supposed to be. Right? Getting, getting worrying, right, is part of this sermon. In other words... This thing that we think is responsible. Do you know people who worry because it would be irresponsible not to worry? Right? Jesus is like, no, pray. Seek the kingdom. Don't be like a pagan. That's one of his main insults. It's like a funny insult that he sprinkles through this. Like, don't be like a pagan. Babbling, verse 32, pagans run after these things. In other words, somebody who doesn't have a clue about spiritual things, sure, they worry. But you have a father who knows what you need. Pray instead of worry. Right? And then this is the big exhortation, the big promise that's opened up in chapter 7 about how to get things done by asking Jesus, which seems wrong, right? It seems like, wow, that really works, you know? But we do pray, and certain situations cause us to pray even more. Here's some things to try. One, ask if you're living upside down in any way. Could it be in the fog of this world, in the fog of uh, like what we call reality, the fog of this time, this age, the way you're raised, what people around you advise you, all this stuff, are you in any way upside down? And if you have a friend who you really trust, they're reading on reality, ask them, do you see anything in my life that is, you know, according to the Sermon on the Mount, upside down? Do you see me treasuring grudges? Do you see me serving money? 
right? There's a lot of questions that could come out. Just ask a friend to help you upgrade your reading of the gauges. And then you could just ask the same question. Which teaching in Matthew 5 to 7 would write, would write my plane? Again, a friend might be able to help. And then lastly, you could ask God, you could pray, like, God, I, I really want to fly right. Teach me what the abundant life is. I'm not the kind of person who just loves teaching. I love to grow. Why don't you stand up? We'll pray together.